Let me tell you a story, podcast number 142. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age of never mind it is how long it's been. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Today, we are privileged to have Martin Bodek, the second author, to talk with us about a Holocaust-focused book. Orrin Snyder, our guest on podcast number 135, retold his grandfather's Holocaust story in The Apprentice of Buchenwald, and Martin has done the same in his book, Zadie's War. However, their grandfather's experiences had little in common other than the horror of that terrible time in history, and in that case, just way too much in common. Thank you, Martin, for joining us all the way from New Jersey, and thank you for sharing your grandfather's unique life with the world. And thank you for having me very much. Uh, and I appreciate uh, referencing Orrin Schneider. He's, he wrote a very, very important book. Uh, and I'm proud of what he put together, but uh, I'm proud to bring you what I've brought together as well. <laughs> so thanks for having me on board. You bet. And we're glad to get into this. Uh, I'll just start out by saying I thought the book was fascinating that one person, well, the whole story, one person, four armies, Different circumstances. I mean, wow, what a, I don't want to call it a tale. It sounds like fiction, but what a story. And uh, so I'll, I'll ask you at first. <laughs> you wrote dozens of articles and 10 books before you penned your grandfather's World War II memoir titled Zadie's War, Four Armies, Three Continents, Two Brothers, One Man's Impossible Story of Endurance. Uh, that's several pages right there. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, would you tell us about your previous writing and why you say Zadie's War, your 11th book, it just may be your most important book? Well, uh, I've always wanted to be a writer since I was a child. Uh, and I was always very focused on uh, making that my reality as reality itself would have it. Uh, there's something else that I do for a living. I'm an IT guy, uh, but I've never given up on my dream of being a writer. And I knew when I was a child, every single time I heard my grandfather's stories, that this was one of the things that I would produce. I knew that when I was seven, when I was eight, when I was nine, when, when he took me under his wing and started uh, uh, interacting with me on a, on a intellectual level rather than, uh, you know, a little child that you just give candies or toys to. Um, mm -hmm. But I was not a writer at the time. I was going to be one eventually one day. So I took up writing as a, as a hobby uh, as I got into my professional life in my 20s. And I've never given up on the dream of putting this together. Uh, but it needed to be done at some point. Uh, along the way, I cranked out several books and it seemed to me it was it, it felt foreordained that I would be doing this uh, as a way to to lay the ground for this book, which I consider to be the most important thing possibly that I could probably produce. But, uh, you know, when I got my grandfather's story to begin with, uh, we sat down with him when I was uh, 
27 years old and I won't date myself, but that was more than two decades ago. <laughs> um, I knew this had to happen. I had no idea how. I was completely unfamiliar with the publishing industry. I had no idea how to get this done. I knew how to get a job in corporate America. That that seems to be a lot easier. You throw your resume around, you look on uh, job sites, that's much easier. To make a living as a writer uh, is a much uh, a much more uh, snaggy ordeal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it ha- but it had to it had to get done. So I started cranking. So we I, we interviewed him, me and my mom, uh, in my late twenties, and then uh, we recorded it on VHSs, and uh, I'm sure you remember what those are. Yes, <laughs> and uh, those went into the shelves, and sat there for a long time while I went through the work of figuring out how to do this all. And as soon as I started getting familiar and uh, have establishing relationships with various publishers uh, and making more and more connections, it finally seemed like it was time to do what I was fated to do, which was to tell my grandfather's incredible story. And that's how I got to where I am. Uh, I do have other books in mind, certain other concepts uh, to write about things that are this important to have other Holocaust ideas, different kinds of research ideas. Uh, but this, this, uh, this is everything. This, this, this needed to be done. This is uh, my grandfather's legacy. Um, and that's why I consider it the most important. It will lead me to important places as well. Um, so it's not, uh, not the last of what I'll produce on this front and neither will it be the last of what I produce on, uh, on the, on the silly front. You know, I, I uh, one thing I've done is, is produced the parody Hagadot, uh, the Passover guide that, that we, uh, use, uh, on Passover to accompany the Seder. And there'll be more of those uh, <laughs> because I have uh, I have a funny bone that I like to exercise very well. But this <laughs> this is uh, serious stuff that needs to get done, especially as uh, Holocaust survivors um, disappear, uh, for for lack of a kinder oh. word, uh, from the face of the earth. Yeah. Well, and um, that's pretty cool that you can write both humor and uh, serious. Right. Um, that's. Um, that shows you're a pretty diverse person. <laughs> uh, I am. My my reading is 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 diverse. Uh, as I said, when I was a child, five or six years old, I used to read the um, uh, Guinness Book of World Records cover to cover, Baseball <laughs> Digest, and books on humor. For I remember reading a Steve Allen book. And, uh, uh, you must know what that is. Who that is? I do. Uh, we do. As a six or a seven year old, about the art of humor. So, oh. so I was reading very mature stuff at a very young age, <laughs> and uh, and Stephen King. That was uh, those were the oh. books I read when I was way too young, way too young. <laughs> I remember my parents watching. I should, shouldn't say this part. I guess. My parents watching Steve Allen and his variety show, and then Jack Parr. Or, I'm not sure who was next, but yeah, way back. <laughs> well, it sounds like you were. Um, did great preparation for your current occupation, or I don't want to call it hob- uh, a hobby because um, I think your night job is just as important as your day job, although one may at this point bring in more money than the other. That's still your way to um, express yourself and, in this case, uh, tell your grandfather's story, which is a very important story. Yes. So I'm going to. Uh, ask you about that story. Uh, you sent us a great synopsis of Zadie's War, which 
I have in front of me and I can read it, but I think our listeners would appreciate hearing a brief description of your grandfather's history from you. Uh, I'm happy to do so. Um, and we can uh, springboard from each you know, clause between commas <laughs> uh, <laughs> at your discretion. So I will uh, give you the synopsis and uh, I send this out when I, when I uh, query uh, folks for interest, for book clubs or podcasts or what have you. Uh, and this is the fewest amount of words uh, in which I could fit this entire large story. So <laughs> my grandfather's story involves serving four armies under wildly unique circumstances, being present for both the largest land invasion in human history and the final battle of World War II, avoiding cannibalism under pain of death, eluding poisoning, surviving to walk 1,600 miles to his home country of Romania, emigrating to Israel, enduring the pummeling of his new community of Haifa during the Six-Day War, finally settling in peace in the U.S. where he served as a chef for 40 years and finished the Talmud 14 times while he was doing all that. He passed away nine years ago at the age of 95. And I am ready, willing, and able to elaborate on any of the points just mentioned. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure where to start on that. It's, I mean, the, six, the thing, all of that, Four armies under all those circumstances, but maybe the one, since I'm not an exercise freak or geek, <laughs> 1,600 miles. I mean, yes, that's how do you even do that? And it's not like he could buy all that he needed um, for the weather. It seems to me that was winter, wasn't it? And anyway, uh, it, yes. Oh, but that he could get what he needed to make it that far. It's not like you just start out in the morning with everything you know, and your lunch packed. Um, I'm kind of blown away by, by that part alone. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, as, as if it wasn't enough, you know, everything that he had to endure up till that point. Uh, he had to get home. So just to, to bring to light how this happened, uh, my grandfather ended up in a uh, Soviet military uh, installation towards the end of the war. And he was um, conscripted into the military because Russia, as today, was running out of uh, personnel <laughs> very quickly. And they needed uh, personnel to finish off the war in, in Berlin to come in from the east while the Americans were uh, and the English were coming in from the west. Uh, so they enlisted their slave corps. My grandfather was indeed a slave um, working for uh, the Soviet army to uh, chop wood and um, serve water for, for the troops. Um, but they enlisted their, their uh, slave corps. Uh, whoever would do so uh, would earn their uh, rank in the army and would, uh, would earn their freedom. So my grandfather thought this was a great idea. And he rolled on into the Battle of Berlin at the end of World War II. They made an about face because Germany had surrendered. Uh, this was on May 8th, uh, 1945. And they returned back to the camp. Once they returned to the camp, all the men who had enlisted were indeed set free. But Russia was not offering anyone uh, the kindness of transportation back home. <laughs> uh, as we know, at the beginning of the Marshall Plan, there was uh, a transportation network uh, set up for for um, lost survivors and um, uh, liberated inmates as well, 
uh, to bring them back home. But if you were in a Russian uh, uh, military camp, nobody was offering you a ride home. So my grandfather and the men that he was with, they were 150 in total, he reported to me. They decided to band together, put together their provisions, uh, swing their backpacks or their bags onto their backs full, full of uh, whatever the stuff of survival consists of. And they hiked out from uh, the military installation. This was very close to the Arctic Circle, about mm. um, 900 miles north of Moscow. Wow. So he traveled from this point with 150 men, um, honing in. I, I don't know if they, if they took on uh, the senses of a bird to figure out how to get home, but the, but they generally knew their way. And I suppose that before they set out, they must have had trackers or guides along with them to make sure that each person knew how to get home. <laughs> so along the way, each of the 150 peeled off to their country of origin or area of origin or passed away due to their privations and uh, kept on keeping on until until they reached uh, their final goals. And my grandfather was actually the last person uh, at the end of the line all the way to make it to his hometown of Romania. And that was <laughs> 1,600 miles from the origin of that trip on foot all the way without any help from anyone. Well, <laughs> so well, that, yeah. um, that question took us to the kind of the end of the story. <laughs> And so, well, we can rewind. Let's go. We would like to rewind. Here, Steve, I'll let you ask this one. Okay. Well, how did Zadie, whose full name was, let's see if I can say this right, Bensian Malik, did I do okay? On uh, correct. Okay. You did fine. Ben, ben how did he end up in four armies during one war? Oh, boy. Let's give you the elevator speech for each uh, conscription. Oh. Uh, <laughs> So uh, when, I, when I speak about this in, in front of audiences, I generally say, you know, in this life, you can serve one army. And that's the usual circumstance. And sometimes you can be a lone soldier and serve a second army. Um, this used to be a, a tagline affixed to Americans who sign up to take part in the Israeli army because they are uh, passionate about their defense. Uh, the, yeah. And lone soldier um, um, basically means that, uh, you know, you're by yourself, you've decided to do so, you don't have much support, uh, so you're called a lone soldier. The same concept has now taken on uh, the same meaning in Ukraine, uh, in fact. I don't know if the Urban Dictionary has uh, caught on to this, uh, <laughs> but people certainly use it uh, for Americans who sign up to, to fight, the, fight the battle in Ukraine uh, because they're passionate about it. So a person could serve uh, in the army of their home country, and if they're passionate about about uh, their motherland or fatherland somewhere, they can sign up there as well. Uh, and in today's age, this is how you can find yourself in two. But how in the world do you find yourself in three and four? <laughs> because that is rare, and I, I, I don't know of any other story like this that has ever happened, ever, uh, except, except that this was my grandfather's experience. So... He managed to do so. It started off simply, and then it became a little more complex. So he was uh, born and raised in Romania, in the area of Transylvania, uh, in a little town called Marmarosh, or Maramuris, I believe it's pronounced in the, in the, the secular vernacular. Um, and he was simply drafted into the army. Uh, in 1939 and 1940, it was a very racist environment, and he was uh, Jewish, of course, and Jews were not allowed to uh, bear arms. They were forbidden from, from doing so. So he built 
uh, infrastructure. His job was to uh, build airports and build scaffolding and build other such things to assist with the with the war effort in in Europe. He was done with his assignment after a year and was sent home. Uh, and that would have been the end of the story. But Hungary annexed his area of Romania, and suddenly he became a Hungarian citizen. And he was recalled by the new Hungarian army. It was very much, as you could imagine, uh, like jury duty. If you move and all of a sudden they call you a month later, that is the same kind of thing, even though it's uh, the experience is uh, worlds apart. So this is how he came to serve in the Hungarian army because he was suddenly a Hungarian citizen. And his job was the exact same that it was before, uh, build infrastructure, build roads, and build uh, airport uh, tarmacs, all in support of the war. While he was stationed in the Hungarian uh, base uh, doing his daily work, the Nazi party came along and selected from the work crew the fittest and uh, most hale among them. My grandfather was uh, one of those. And the job was actually to dig foxholes uh, for the German troops on the front lines as they were uh, participating in Operation Barbarossa, which, uh, for the historians in the crowd, was the uh, single largest in human invasion in military history. Millions died. I think the number is 1.5 million Russian soldiers died in defense of their country. Hmm. And my grandfather was smack dab in the middle of that affair. Uh, and that is how he came to uh, serve or actually be enslaved uh, by a third army, which was the German army. And as we discussed, at the end game was, was his conscription with the Russian army. But the way that he got there was that he escaped from this assignment because he was sick and tired of watching his friends being felled by bullets left and right, and he thought he would not live another day, so he took advantage of an opportunity and escaped. Uh, and he escaped into the Russian countryside where he begged for food and lodging. And one day, as he describes it, his head was uh, all the way into a garbage can, and when he, he was rooting for food, and when he picked up his head, he was staring down the barrel of a gun, which was in fact held by a Russian soldier who rounded up uh, in the neighborhood, many other such uh, types who were scrounging for food. And they brought them all to a uh, military camp somewhere on the Black Sea. Um, I, I have not yet located it, uh, but I think it is um, to the east of the Black Sea. Russia keeps its secrets very well. Uh, they will not reveal to me their uh, military encampments. And research is still ongoing on the exact location, though I have my suspicions that it was in the, in the approximate area to the west of the Black Sea around the Crimea Peninsula. So he was stationed there for a few months, and then he was shipped north, uh, as I described before, to a military encampment called uh, Hrinor, I remember clearly, and at a place called uh, Kirovsky Oblast, where he served three and a half years uh, for the Russian troops and then was conscripted into his fourth military uh, in the beginning of 1945, where he graduated as a private in the Russian army as a sniper. And that was his fourth military assignment. And that, my friends, is how you get to serve four armies <laughs> in the course of uh, six years. Wow. So you talked some about um, what your grandfather did for the different armies. 
but I was especially fascinated by his work in northern Russia mm-hmm. um, because he was so strong in those, those incredibly long days. <laughs> so could you tell us more about that? So um, what's, what was very interesting about my grandfather's experience is that we are very used to um, images of uh, Holocaust survivors being hollowed out and skeletal. Uh, and these images are tragic. But in my grandfather's case, um, he survived the war by experiencing something completely different. He liked to forage in the forests when he was a kid. That was part of his uh, childhood adventure. Um, and he came to know what was edible and what was not. Um, and he knew how to hunt for food in the woods. And uh, he knew how to capture uh, animals and fish. And he, he just was well-versed in all this. And his skill was honed. Um, during this experience in in the Arctic wilderness uh, of of his location in Russia, so the difference between life and death in in many instances um, for concentration camp inmates was calories. If you could get mm-hmm. your hands on some, if you can get your hands on a little more than than another person, it it meant the difference between life and death. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather was constantly finding food and feeding himself. And, and working as a logger. So he became strengthened. And we have a photo of him just after World War II. And it's striking how strong he looks mm-hmm. with just robust chest uh, and, uh, you know, uh, electric dimples and just, just put together, <laughs> strong and hale and hearty. And it's a very, very opposite image. So, so he surfaced from the war, just, uh, just this beast. And actually, uh, I remember um, when I was a kid, you know, playing around in the kitchens where he was chef. I admired his, his forearms that he was just, uh, they were just powerful. They were like arm wrestlers forearms. You know, he was slinging pots around left and right, but that had a basis in his survival story in world war two. Mm. Um, and he was, he was simply fit. So he came out of world war two, a, a fit and sharpened, uh, Ubermensch, if you will. And, uh, was completely opposite of, of, uh, um, the experiences that we're familiar in uh, seeing. Ah, interesting. Wow, oh, yeah. So I think this leads us to the, there was cannibalism, and I'm guessing that's because there was so much um, trouble finding food. Is is that, was that at the same place or time? How did that? Uh, so the, the cannibalism episode um, happened in late 1944 at the Russian uh, encampment. Um, Russia always seems to be running out of supplies, <laughs> then and now. Uh, <laughs> and uh, as we know, the Germans were, were assaulting uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow. Uh, they never actually did got there, get there, but they certainly were able to disrupt supply lines uh, when they were doing so. And in one of these instances, for, for several weeks, the area where he was simply could not get normal food. So uh, they had to resort to uh, cannibalism itself. And the reason that they had a, a healthy, uh, for lack of a better word, supply of this is because it was so cold that the dead in this encampment did not rot. Mm. So uh, they had uh, food aplenty uh, from this alternate source. But uh, my grandfather absolutely refused um, to partake of this. He had the interesting fortune of having a friend of his from his hometown somehow wind up as the head chef in this camp. He had followed a very similar route 
as my grandfather did from his Hungarian assignment to capture by the Germans to then capture by the Russians. And he did this just a few months before my grandfather. So he kind of led the way before he did. They compared notes at the end of the war and realized that they had followed each other around all the way <laughs> to this uh, establishment. So his name was uh, Yeruchim Bloch. That's his name. And he somehow managed to make his way also to this establishment and uh, was uh, used in the same capacity that my grandfather was. And one day, the head chef in the camp, who was a, a, of uh, Russian uh, descent, died. Uh, I don't know why this happened, um, but that's what happened. And uh, there was no one to replace him. So uh, the commander of the camp asked for volunteers to take over his position. And so this uh, this man, Yeruchim, said, uh, you know what, I, uh, I'm going to sign up. <laughs> so he mm-hmm. signed up and uh, became the chef of the place. And he managed to get uh, my grandfather some additional calories also because he was good friends with him. When they were running out of food and all that was available was, was human uh, fare, Yeruchim told my grandfather that he has to. He has to partake of this to survive. That that he has to. That it's that it's permissible under these circumstances uh, to do so from from a you know Jewish law perspective. Uh, but my grandfather did not uh, listen. He refused. So Yeruchim decided to punish him as a way to convince him that he had to. So he withheld uh, the other stuff, the meager other uh, rations that were available. Uh, to try to convince him to partake fully of of this alternate fare, which was available, but my grandfather uh, absolutely refused to do so uh, for days. Uh, and uh, as he describes it, he he felt like he was near death, and uh, Yeruchim's uh, cajoling to eat this stuff was ineffective. So Yeruchim decided, um, uh, you know, in admiration of my grandfather's principles, that he would um, sneak some food over from the Russian troops uh, under the pain of uh, severe punishment uh, and provided to my grandfather. Um, once he decided to do so, he did it for just a couple of days, and then the supply lines uh, became replenished. And my grandfather is, is very proud to say that he never succumbed and that he was willing uh, to give up his life rather than, rather than um, succumb to such what he thought was was an aberration of, of uh, human principle. Uh, Amazing. That is yeah. some strong character there. Wow. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. While he was uh, serving the various troops, <laughs> Zadie's friends and family um, suffered terrible persecution just because they were Jewish. Uh, can yes. you tell us more about um, that small village, Romanian village he was from, and, and what happened to them? Well, their story is uh, the story that uh, that is the most familiar in the in the telling of Hol- Holocaust lore. Uh, they were in a little town, as I said, Marmarosh. Uh, it was divided into smaller neighborhoods, so they were from Interviceva, uh, um, which basically means uh, downtown Romania, and. Uh, what happened to them was uh, the same that happened almost everywhere. Um, slow but gradual removal of rights and removal of uh, positions that you can hold and then removal of uh, jobs you can have until you're left uh, with the inability to do anything to, to sustain yourself. Um, and in 1944, they were uh, rounded up and uh, they were taken to Auschwitz um, three days before uh, the holiday of Pentecost or Shavuot, where 
almost all of them uh, were murdered upon arrival. So there were uh, 18 members of my grandfather's immediate family. Um, 15 did not survive the day. Um, and my uncle, my great uncle, excuse me, Eliezer, survived the day. And uh, his sister, uh, my grandfather's sister, um, Sarah, uh, also survived the day. Um, Sarah uh, succumbed to her hunger and despair. It was told to Eliezer. Um, uh, people may not be aware that um, uh, Auschwitz and many other such uh, installations were, were gender separate. Um, so in order to find out what is going on with your, with your opposite gender relative or, or opposite gender person that you cared a lot about, uh, you had to uh, sneakily somehow find an informant to, to keep you informed. So my great uncle Eliezer did find such a person. Um, and kept tabs on his sister to see how she was doing. Uh, and one day, his informant told him, uh, indeed, your sister has uh, has died of hunger and despair. And that was the exact quote that was given to him. Um, and uh, my great uncle thought at that point that he was the only person left in the world because a very, very, very strange episode happened in my grandfather's life when he transferred from the Hungarian army to the German army. Uh, and that is, and this is a practice probably done in many countries nowadays, if your loved one is uh, um, signed up or enlisted in, in, in an armed force anywhere in the world, you will, if the person is not special forces, um, get information that the person has moved locations. Meaning if there's a drastic moving of, of, of this person from one location to the next, you will get generally vague information uh, about the fact that he's moved locations. And the Hungarian army policy was to send telegrams home, notifying about this move and location. And they had certain euphemisms they used to indicate whether the person had arrived safely or was killed in action. So if your loved one had successfully arrived in his location, so the telegram said that he has arrived safely. If this person was killed in action, in fact, they would say in this telegram, they have arrived. They have arrived means... They didn't make it for whatever reason. And perhaps later, you might get better information. But because the Hungarians had given him to the German army, they had resigned themselves to relaying the message that uh, my grandfather had indeed passed away. He was considered killed in action as soon as he was transferred to German troops. Hmm. Therefore, the message home was, your son, Ben Sion, has arrived. Hmm. And the family took it to mean that he was dead. And they never saw him again after that point. This was uh, in early 1941, I believe. So they thought that he passed away, and they went to their uh, ultimate fates, thinking that he was gone long ago uh, when they passed away. And this was Eliezer's thinking as well, that when his sister passed away, he thought that he was the last person left of his family in the world. And, and uh, well, that concludes what happened to, to my family and their experience in uh, the hell of Auschwitz. So when my grandfather finished uh, his 1600 mile hike into back into his hometown, he found his house, which was uh, demolished. I don't think my grandfather ever determined exactly why, uh, because the area I don't think was bombed and he believes that it was simply vandalized and taken apart mm -hmm. uh, by anti-Semites in the area. While he was sitting there, lamenting uh, the loss of his home, which he had hiked 1,600 miles to see and find comfort in, mm -hmm. 
an old neighbor of his, and he remembered her name. Her name was Nina. Said, Benzini, you're alive. Your brother is home as well. So she mm -hmm. sent her son to go fetch uh, Eliezer, my grandfather's brother. And uh, my grandfather describes uh, the moment to me as if seeing a, a, a ghost, mm -hmm. a wraith, um, coming at him down in the street. And as my grandfather describes it, uh, they hugged each other and cried for an hour in the middle mm -hmm. of the street. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they had lost they had lost everything, but at least they had each other. Yes. You know, I, I can't imagine what it must have been like for Eliezer to, to you know, uh, he was the, he had been there for months. He was uh, liberated from Buchenwald. He went first to Auschwitz, then Buchenwald. Uh, and then he came home. And he thought that he was the last one, but and he looks and he sees, he sees his brother, he sees his brother, and then they got to work together uh, to rebuild their community and to uh, to restructure their lives uh, to the best of their ability. I can see that in a movie. <laughs> yeah, I can see this. That, was, that I, I can tell you that that, you know, I tried obviously to give to give passion and good description to these um, vignettes in the book. And this episode, I was very challenging to really, really, really project what was going on in this instance. Yes, um, I had to pull out my best, my best Dickens that I have uh, <laughs> to, des to describe the moment. Uh, I don't know if I succeeded, but I certainly did my best to relay how my grandfather described it in that moment. Yeah. No, you did a good job. You brought did. brought yeah. me to I tears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But just that sight of, after all they've been through, to be in the middle of the street, crying together. Wow. Yeah. It's, a, it's poignant. It's a, it's a moment. It's a moment. And then the book is filled, filled with these moments. But mm. th that, one, uh, that one stands out. It, it wasn't even the most emotional for my grandfather. You know, when, when we interviewed him over several weeks and several hours, uh, he'd get upset at certain points, he'd get emotional at certain points, and he may have been hiding his emotions. Uh, <laughs> but as he describes it, the the deepest and most heartfelt emotions he felt were when he arrived home and he saw his ruined house, <laughs> and uh, and he says that the the pain of seeing his grand his father's books, his holy books. And the and the prayer book uh, that his grandfather always had in his hands ripped apart and used um, as toilet paper. Mm. He said that it was so soiled that he could not even rescue a single page of his of his father's favorite holy book. Oh. And uh, he he nearly fell apart on me <laughs> in that moment. Mm. Um, but that was for him. I, I, I remember looking for where he would be in the in the darkest emotional place and it was that moment. Yeah. And I, I hope I described it uh, effectively as well mm. when I when I uh, uh, fleshed it out for, for the book. Well, I, th I think it came through. Yeah. yeah. And the expectations he he expected to find his family, well, was hoping to find his family or at least his home. And Eliezer was um, not expecting to find um, any family members. He had given up hope of that. So, Yes, he has. Uh, that's, that's just an interesting um, combination of expectations that are suddenly 
reversed in a major way. Yeah, I mean, th- these two gentlemen were were pulled in all sorts of emotional directions in this in the you know in the same space. <laughs> yes, you know, yeah. they're hugging each other for different reasons. Eliezer thinks, you know, oh my gosh, I have one survivor, and and my grandfather. Obviously, in this moment, uh, Eliezer had to tell him what happened to everyone else. Mm, yes. So both are both must be in that in, in this crazy emotional state for all different sorts of reasons of loss, mm-hmm. um, and it's 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 a, a very 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 powerful powerful passage and moment. Right. Yes. It is. <laughs> well, switching a little bit. Sure. You probably heard Zadie's stories when you were a child, and I'm guessing you probably didn't get the full picture or understand it for quite a while. What stood out to you the most? And is there a time when Zadie became a hero in your life? Or what, 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 at what point was that? Well, um, have you seen the Shawshank Redemption? Yes. Okay, so there's, a, there's a quote there where Red, uh, that's uh, Morgan Freeman's character, says... Get busy living or get busy dying. <laughs> and uh, I think I, I do not have that in the quote anywhere in the chapter heading of the book. <laughs> but if I can revisit it, that is basically the thesis and, and the reason that my grandfather was my hero. Because this is what he did. He made command decisions at key moments. And each of these decisions was, I have got to figure out how I'm going to deal with this situation. I need to figure out how I'm getting home. I need to figure out how I'm getting food. I need to, I need to figure this out. I got to figure out how to rebuild my community. I got to figure out how I'm getting home. He was constantly engaged in this, in this battle, but, but constantly moving forward with the business of surviving and living. Um, and if that's not a reason to admire anyone, then I, I just don't know what is. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. And I, I appreciated this as a child and, and as an adult. And uh, my whole life was spent in admiration of his of his constant moxie. Um, <laughs> even even in the mundane uh, reality of life, when he arrived in the states, he he like most immigrant stories that we hear from the from the you know Ellis Island in the 30s and 40s. You have people just like they don't know they have five cents in their pocket, and then they go and they find themselves a job because that was the reality, and that's exactly what my grandfather did. And he managed to earn a living just just by hitting the job boards and just asking and just constantly looking after his own survival. And and I, have, I appreciate him and honor him uh, for this quality as well. Um, so that's what that's what he was all about. He was he was getting busy living. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when he was forced into retirement due to some uh, very unkind uh, ageism, <laughs> he was despondent. He was just out of shape. He was um, 83 years old at the time or, or some such. And he had no uh, plans to retire at all whatsoever. He had been a chef for 40 years and he was going to keep going if anyone was going to let him. But uh, the school that he was in decided that he was too old and they needed to bring in new blood. And uh, he called my uncle my uh, in <clears throat> and he said to him, help me write an ad, um, you know, looking for a job as a chef. And my uncle tried to tell him, <laughs> Dad, you're you're in your 80s. It's okay. You can collect Social Security now. Just mm-hmm. take it easy. You, you've worked forever. You've been through a lot. And he goes, no. 
you you stop working, you die. Uh-huh. That was that was that was his version of get busy living or get busy dying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Slightly slightly uh, uh, coarser version, but that was that was basically his philosophy, and just this constant constant living, striving, moving forward, um, which is a quality that I try to possess and I try to impress upon my children. You constantly get after it. You know, I'm trying to inspire them right now. I mean, I do what I do for a living, um, but I want to be a writer and I'm pursuing this as best as I can. And I'm just showing them, you know, this is what you got to do. You got to, you got to, you got to pay your family's bills and then hope that whatever extracurricular uh, could switch positions at whatever slow rate uh, presents itself. But this is, this is the business of life. Yes. So uh, not only do I admire him, but I try to emulate him uh, to the best that I can. Thank- thankfully, we're not in an age where the entire world is in uh, uh, conflagration. But uh, in, in the mundane existence of everyday life, I, I, I try to emulate it as best as I can. Yeah, what a great example. That's right. So I'm curious, uh, did he ever place that ad? Um, I don't think that he did. No. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think uh, my uncle was uh, basically trying to tell him that he just experienced heartbreak because nobody wanted to. Uh, to hire an 83-year-old chef. Oh. <laughs> um, so I think, I think actually, uh, my, my mom told me this, that he tried to protect him from the heartache uh, by not placing the ad. I think that was uh, ultimately what happened. <laughs> so kind of along that line, a takeaway for me from your book is perseverance and faith, uh, your grandfather's perseverance and faith in God. Mm-hmm. And he had a great deal of both. And maybe you've already answered this, um, but what else would you like readers to remember from Sadie's story? Um, I'd like them to know that uh, that um, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself because the last thought felt like the the, the culmination of the lesson. Um, mm-hmm. But it's very interesting that that you uh, spoke of faith. Uh, what is very interesting is that in this instance, so he was a man of faith, absolutely. Uh, he was a he was a, a man of faith before the war and a man of faith after, but in the middle it got extremely interesting. Hmm. Um, and people poke at this and ask me a million questions about this all the time, uh, so I'm happy to tell you uh, the story now. <laughs> so I don't usually offer this um, during the ta- during talks, especially when I'm in congregations who are extremely sensitive about uh, faith matters. Um, especially when I'm speaking to youth, you know, I, when I speak to eighth graders and seventh graders, which is something that I do on occasion, uh, I try not to preach, um, cause this is a story of survival, but I did poke the question with my grandfather and I said to him, uh, I said, uh, Zaidi, that's, that's what we call them. Oh. Um, <laughs> during this experience, when did you have time to pray or, or do the rituals that we're all familiar with? And he looked at me like I had grown a second head. <laughs> and he said, what, 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 pray? I'm trying to survive. And I, was, and I thought that that was a very daring uh, revelation on his part, because I always thought of him as a, as a thoroughly religious man. Um, but he made it very clear to me that, that while he was enduring this, there was, there was no time for the trappings of faith. He needed to survive. And when he was done surviving, he'd get back to the business of the faith that he was familiar with. 
How so interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. And it's a total twist because because that's part of the story as well. And 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 part of why the story needed to be told, because you don't usually hear this. You hear that people maintain their faith all the way through, or you hear that people uh, remove themselves from the faith because they thought that God was silent and, and uh, ignored their pleas. Uh, but but you generally don't hear what I just told you, um, right. and that itself is 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 worthy of contemplation, mm-hmm. because because it, it, you know people sometimes do take breaks from their faith, and sometimes they do come back, and sometimes they don't, and this is just an interesting permutation in the life of a person, um, and not a story that you usually hear. All right, I mean, you hear of foxhole conversions. But this is like yes. the opposite. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, and it's just it's a, it's and, and this is this is what the story is. It's it completely atypical. It's it's twists and turns and events that you've never heard of, and 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 this little little facet of existence where 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 he needs to survive. So he does what he needs to survive. It's a very focused, man. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, this has been so. So uh, fascinating, Martin. Um, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy reading Zaidi's War. Or, or Zaidi's. <laughs> oh, oh, Zaidi's, yes. We've been saying it wrong. <laughs> How, however you'd like to pronounce it. When people ask, I say, uh, Zaidi Smith, um, are you familiar? And they say, yes. I say, you could pronounce it that way if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start that part again then, see if I can get it right. <laughs> it's been a... <laughs> An exciting uh, time, uh, very interesting to say the least. Uh, what a story! I'm glad you wrote that book. Uh, and the book I'll say the name again is Zaidi's War, which, by the way, recently attained finalist status in the International Book Awards. Congratulations! That's, that's great. Well, I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> that's a nice little feather in my cap. Yes, uh, a long time to receive such an honor, and, and uh, the book and my grandfather are deserving of that recognition. So thank you. Yeah, yeah good for you. Now, how can we find the book, and how can listeners contact you? Uh, you can find it uh, anywhere where fine books are sold. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly, if uh, you go to Amazon, you can find it there, or Barnes and Noble. Uh, I do appreciate all reviews left of the book very, very much. That would be very kind of everyone. Uh, to get in touch with me, just Google my name. I am not hiding from anyone. I'm on <laughs> Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. I am everywhere, and I am I am not in seclusion. If you want me, if you want to talk to me, if you want to engage with me, you'll find me. Do you have a website? Uh, I do. I have a blog, martinbodick.com, um, and uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as well. Um, and I warehouse my Haggadot, if I can give myself a quick plug, on theknish.com. Spell that for us. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, T-H-E-K-N-I-S-H dot com. It was my version of The Onion, and I use mm-hmm. it uh, to warehouse uh, information about uh, my other um, silly wares. <laughs> Great. And for our listeners' sakes, uh, sake, your, I'll just spell your name so I get it right, M-A-R-T-I-N, B-O-D-E-K. Correct. And .com, right? Correct. For your other website. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, good. Thank you so much. Wow. Um, what a privilege this has been for us. Yes. Thank you. And I also thank our listeners. Remember, you too have a story. Be sure to live it to the fullest. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.